Yeah. Right then, guys. Hello, everyone. Hello. 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 Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the teaching fellows here in June. Welcome to our third session of the research. And today we're going to be looking at good clinical practice and ethics, and having a look at why that's so important when it comes to clinical research. Uh, spoiler alert, there's going to be quite a bit of Nazis and syphilis over the course of this discussion. These are our learning outcomes for today. So we're going to explain what ethics are and why they're important to medical research. We're going to know what GCP is, why it's, why it's important and how we get it, um, certified. And then we're going to outline how to apply for ethical approval. So if we just refresh our memories and go back in some of our previous sessions, in our first session, we were looking very much at the research uh, method, and that involved having a look at a literature review, working out what holes there are in the literature, looking at what our outcome is going to be, and we talked a bit about primary and secondary outcomes, and then how that might guide our method, and then we informed uh, the most departments as an example of that. Last session, we had a look at PICO. Do you remember what PICO stands for? What does P stand for? Yeah, population problem. Yeah, I stands for intervention. C stands for control or comparison. Yeah, and O is outcome. Who invented the clinical method of research? James Lennon. What year is it? 1747. Yeah. Yeah. 1747. He essentially invented the clinical research method. And we, talked, we used his example when we talked about PICO. This is how we formulate a clinical question. You have a population and a problem. His population was Royal Navy sailors with scurvy. He had an intervention in mind. He thought that acids cured scurvy. He thought the scurvy was due to a lack of acid. He thought citric acid would be a really good cure. So he thought, let's give citric, citrus fruits. He had some comparisons. He had sulfuric acid, vinegar, seawater, uh, and a spicy paste with barley. Uh, and he had an outcome. He'd hope that they would be fighting fit and they'd be able to go off and fight the French. And he invented the method. So yeah, so that's our first two sessions that we had so far. Please remember, as with all of our previous sessions, that this is a friendly environment. It's nice and open. If any of you have a question or a point to make, please feel free to get involved. So building on that, we've got our first bit of group work today. What I'd like you to do is have a look at it, formulate the P code for that, what was the PICO? But then also, as we're in an ethical session, some things may alarm you as you're reading it. So I'd like you to then have a chat about what the ethical issues are in that study. So you guys here at the front. So your study was, uh, your abstract says, syphilis is an important sexually transmitted disease with multiple stages. Little is known about the right time to begin treatment for syphilis and at which stage of progression and with which dose. It's been theorised that syphilis affects different ethnic groups. We observed 625 poor African-American sharecroppers. 431 had syphilis at the time of enrolment. They were given free medical care, meals and burial insurance for participating. They were informed that the study would last six months but continued for 40 years. After a decade of um, the study beginning, it was shown that penicillin could be a treatment for syphilis, but no participant was treated with penicillin and the observation continued. No participant was informed they had syphilis. By the end of the study, 28 died of syphilis, 100 were dead of related complications, 40 of their wives had been infected, and 19 of their children had congenital. 
So guys, what did you come up with then for Kiko and for your efforts? <laughs> so Kiko, okay. yeah. Yeah, observation, yeah. It's a non-intervention, isn't it? You, they didn't treat that as this. Yeah. And C, they were not compared to anything. Yeah, not in this study now. And, oh, the outcome is 28 died. Mm -hmm. 100 died of the way of observation. 40 wives infected. And 90 children were infected. Do you know which study this one is? Yes, it's well known as an example of uh, how not to do a study. Okay. Uh, went on for 40 years, until 1972. Uh, it's interesting that the people who were behind this study actually felt that they were doing good, because these were poor people who in America would not have had any access to free uh, medical care. So actually by being enrolled in this study, they felt that while we're not treating the syphilis, if anything else comes along, we can treat that, and we're actually doing good. That was their argument. Well, what's even worse is that during the time of this study was the Second World War, and men in this study were called up to fight. Army doctors said, you've got syphilis. And the people behind the study did all they could to stop the army doctors from treating them. So it's an example of how not to do it. But interestingly, one of the gentlemen behind your study is also behind your study, so the second group. So, your one was also involving syphilis and involved the recruitment of 1,038 Guatemalans from the army, prisons and mental institutions. Participants were unknowingly infected with syphilis, either through inoculation or through exposure with prostitutes infected with syphilis. <laughs> 52% of them received a form of treatment, which was either penicillin, which they knew worked, placebo or traditional treatment. The age range of the treated patients was anything from 10 to 72, and overall 82 participants died. So what was your PICO and what were your ethics? So what's more of the people that were unknowingly yep. Uh, Dr. John Cutler, who was also behind Tuskegee, so he was very into his syphilis research and using vulnerable groups, as we've already discovered. Uh, that trial is known as the Guatemalan Syphilis Experiment, went on from 46 to 48. Okay, catchy title. Uh, it was only stopped when there was some gossip going around amongst public health circles, and it was also stopped because they ran out of money because penicillin was expensive. It was the only reason it really stopped. And we only found out about it in 2005 when somebody researching Tuskegee came across the same files about it. So, yeah. so back. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> and the doctors behind this were all from America. So finally, group there at the back, you've got a child that doesn't involve support. Um, <laughs> 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 Unfortunately, there's only so much syphilis one could Google. Um, there is limited knowledge regarding the treatment of prostate cancer or the training for rectal examiners. It has proven hard to recruit patients to trials due to concerns over pain and other adverse effects. We recruited homeless men in Lower Manhattan showing signs and symptoms of urinary obstruction. Little was known of their background, although many had alcohol or mental health problems. Patients underwent a physical exam as well as blood and radiological investigations and had biopsies of their prostate taken. If cancer was confirmed, a prostatectomy and orchidectomy, so that their prostate and their testicles removed, was performed and they had hormone treatment commenced. Patients found to have cancer received a bed, three, de three, three meals a day and had free medical treatment. To ensure recruitment, we did not inform the patients of any adverse effects following biopsy. 24 patients reported adverse events. Of 686 patients tested, the mortality rate for patients with negative biopsies was 20%, while it was 30% in patients with positive biopsies following our rigorous treatment. you guys think for Kiko? street he recruited these guys from was called Skid Row. It's actually called Skid Row. This is Dr. Perry Hudson, who was a New York urologist, who continued to practice medicine, and I believe might still be alive. Um, and he thought this was a great, brilliantly designed study. Uh, and he said, well, of course it's great, because uh, I don't, haven't paid them, there's no coercion, they're homeless people, they wouldn't have seen a doctor otherwise, this is a great study. And he began publishing his research, and that's when people started pointing out to him he didn't have a control or comparison. That's what stopped him publishing, rather than ethics. Okay, well done, guys. So, what is the definition of ethics? Have one.
say it a lot. What does it mean to you? Difference between right and wrong, yeah? Yeah, welfare participants, yeah. So essentially, it's the moral considerations that guide your behaviour or an activity. So it can be the personal ethics guiding you, but also an activity, whether it's a research trial, whether it's a clinical operation, etc., etc. So whatever you put there. The important thing there about ethics, I think, something that we mentioned in all of these groups is there's a degree of power and control. Has anyone here ever actually been in hospital as a patient? I think being as a doctor, being a patient, I suddenly realise just how much control you hand over when you're a patient. And actually when you're the doctor and nurse there, how much power you have over that person. And they have to have a lot of trust in us because we've got their best interests at heart. And that if we're giving them demographics, if we're giving them information, observations, if we're giving them tissues, we've got to make sure that it's being done for the right reason. To help both that person, but also the wider community. We've probably found all of these there are people who thought they were doing the right thing, they were fully trained, they were in a democratic country, but clearly ethically does the problem. Ethics has obviously been formed throughout the centuries, so Hippocratic Oath, 5th century BC, that's probably about the first time we started having medical ethics. And from there we get the phrase primum non nocere, you've probably heard that expression, it means first you know harm. And that really is the first principle that guides uh, ethical practice. First, when we're there with our patient, making sure that we've got their best interests in heart and that we're doing the right thing for them. So ethics can be a personal thing. What you think is right and wrong may be different to me. We all have our own political opinions, we all have our own faith, we have religion that guides us, we have experiences that guide us. And those can sometimes be at odds to things that are going on in the outside community. It can be at odds of what we have to do for our patients sometimes. That's why it's important to move away from the personal and to start thinking about the official. That's why it's very important that there are legislation and there are guides for us to guide our ethical practice when it comes to research. That really is primarily a tale of two cities. Great book. The first city in question is Nuremberg, 1947, the Nuremberg Code. What was going on in Nuremberg in 1947? So after the Second World War, the full horror of what was going on in the Nazi concentration camps was coming out. The work of Joseph Mengele, horrible studies on twins and people he considered inferior. And people realised this can't go on. And actually what we need is a guide for ethical practice in research. And they came up with a code of ten principles. It's all it's ten principles. And it looks at things like, the stuff we will talk about, informing our patient, making sure that they can consent, making sure that there is a clear reason for our practice. It's not just because we fancy them. And stopping if we start to notice there are adverse events. Moving on from there, so this is Nuremberg's museum. It's a lovely city, Nuremberg. Helsinki in 1964, so the Helsinki Declaration, World Health Organization, they expanded slightly 
on those 10 principles, they came up with 11 principles. But again, looking at it, enshrining, it's not a, a legally binding, but it is morally binding, the principles that guide our research. And the Helsinki Declaration has moved on and moved on and has been added to over the years. The latest edition is in 2013, and there are now 37 principles that guide us in our practice, even here in Nottingham. It's all the way around the world. We are setting up a trial. These are principles we expect wherever you are in the world to be in the same way. So, the opening line of Tale of Two Cities is the best of times and the worst of times. We've looked at a lot of the worst of times, mentioned in Nazi, we looked at syphilis. Now, think about the best of times. Yes, HRA, brilliant, yeah. So I've had to fill out a whole load of paperwork for my university dissertation, but that involved university students, so that was purely for the university, going through versions of this If you're involving patients and NHS staff, that's when you need to get things up, thinking about the health research authority, get their ethical approval before you start uh, your trial. Um, as Phil mentioned, if a trial comes to you like this, um, Magneto-Echo-Cardiography. That's a large multi-centre trial. We already have had central approval before it comes to us, so we don't have to worry about that. It comes with ethical approval. But if we're setting something up here, that's when we have to start thinking about the health And their website is very useful. If you go to their website, you basically get this uh, tool which basically goes through us asking you questions to see whether or not what you plan to do actually qualifies as research, a series of yes no questions. And you answer it, and it says, yes, you are research. You need to follow the pathway and uh, fill in the form. <coughs> follow that and go to other pages on there. They have it all spilt out for you exactly what you need to do. These are your forms that you need to fill in. And you need to carry the documents, you need to see them before we can give you need that for any, if we're involving NHS staff or NHS patients, or NHS So for our Centre for the Pump Priming studies as well, key part of theirs, and it does even say we look favourably if you have involved patients and the public in your, trial, in, in your design, to show that you've thought about this when you're designing. Excellent. Which then of course brings us on to good clinical practice, GCP. So these are the international standards of ethical, scientific and practical considerations when it comes to research. If you are GCP positive, that is an international standard that shows that you appreciate all the stuff that we've been talking it is uh, a requirement of law following 2005 research governance framework. If you are going to be doing clinical research, you need to. This is the National Institute of Health Researchers page, and it basically goes through what Do I need it? And if you do need it, how do you go about getting it? There's a range of online e learning you can do in your own time. Uh, and once you've all the way through and done it, you have your piece of pieces. 
and it covers things not just about Nuremberg, not just about Helsinki, but also how to report an adverse event, who is actually responsible during your trial or something like that. It's all sort of consideration. as well as to the uh, NHR uh, and the HRA and we'll go through all of that. Our next session is on the 16th of May. Lucy and I will be looking on that one. We'll be looking at uh, types of trial. So we've now started looking at the foundations of uh, research but then we'll be actually getting into the nitty-gritty of actually what the different types of trial are and what they're there for. Hopefully I've shown you that why we worry so much about ethics. It's not just some bod of, you know, annoying hurdle that we need to get over. It's actually there to protect not just our patients and our colleagues, but us ourselves. It's a way to help us to guide our practice and to make sure that we are doing our absolute best for our patients. Ultimately, what I hope I've shown to you is that the only way is ethics. <laughs>